Welcome to the Teaching Through the Eyes of Trauma podcast, where we engage and empower educators and other community leaders to view interactions with students through a trauma-informed and resilience-focused lens. This podcast will focus on providing tools and strategies that will prepare you to realize the widespread impact of trauma, to recognize signs and symptoms of trauma and toxic stress in students, to respond by fully integrating knowledge about trauma-informed and resilience-focused practices, and to seek to actively resist re-traumatization by healing first and educating always. Let's get into the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Teaching Through the Eyes of Trauma with me, Dr. Smith. Today, we're going to talk about does exposure to trauma equals suicide? And our essential question is, does experiencing trauma in childhood put you at a greater risk for suicide? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And our episode has come about because there have been three suicides in the past week in the media, in the past couple of weeks, I'm sorry, in the media. And it's Ian Alexander Jr., actress Regina King's son, who was 26. Chesley Crisp, a former lawyer, a TV correspondent on Extra and model and former Miss USA 2019, who was 30 years old. Moses J. Mosley, who played a zombie in The Walking Dead. So he was an actor in The Walking Dead, and he was 31 years of age. And so because of these things that have happened lately, we thought it would be a great show to talk about does trauma in childhood or exposure to trauma in childhood lead to suicidal ideation? Here to talk with me today is my guest, Ms. Ebony Robinson. She is a licensed master social worker and therapist in the Dallas area. Hello, Ebony. Welcome. Hello. How are you Thanks doing? Good. Thanks for being okay. here. I think this is a really impactful conversation that we should have. And so I wanted to get someone on who is actually dealing with this or who does work with this. And so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So um, like you stated, I am a la- licensed master social worker and therapist. So t- currently I am under clinical supervision to get my clinical license. So that's how I'm able to practice therapy because I am being uh, supervised by a clinical social worker. So um, I practice uh, therapy. I have therapy clients uh, part-time. That's what I do. And then during the daytime, I work with veterans. So I am a social worker at the Department of Veteran Affairs. And I work in the homeless department in the mental health unit of the VA. So you deal with a lot of people who suffer with post-traumatic stress disorder. I do. Yes. So let's get into the research real quick. Thank you for being here. Depression is rising among millennials and baby boomers. And so if we look at the ages of the people who have just recently committed suicide, they fall into that category, right? They're millennials. And one in every five young adults suffers from clinical depression, with 5,000 of them committing suicide each year. And so when I was looking at this, I was trying to figure out what could be the common denominator, right? And a lot of people, especially right now, are going through a lot of anxiety and depression. And I found that antidepressants or the prescription, the prescribed antidepressants have risen from the 90s to for 400%. 400% prescriptions have gone up for antidepressants. And so I feel like, especially right now, this is a time that we should talk about it, that we should discuss why those things are going on. And not only why, but what can we do about it, right? So what are the things that we can do to intervene? 
Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. The 10th leading cause of death. And then men are 3.7 times more likely to commit suicide, but are less likely to seek help from a mental professional. So in your day-to-day practice, is that what you're saying that you can have more clients that are females that actually seek out? Because I know some people are referred to you and you have to, they have to go through your program, but is it the ones who reach out for assistance or for help? Do, are you finding that it's more females than males? Actually, I want to say it's about the same. So the comment has shifted a little bit. I would say that it was more females probably a year or two ago, um, but the comment has changed a little bit. Males, especially in their 20s, are seeking more help. So they're noticing that there's a problem and that they are ready to resolve some underlying issues and they're actually reaching out for assistance. But again, that, that population is a little younger. So they're more in their 20s, early 20s, yeah. Older population, I would say, yeah, it is more challenging to get them in to seek therapeutic assistance. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the older people are more reluctant to seek mental health? I would say stigma. It's the stigma of uh, what that means uh, for somebody that's supposed to meet an ideal uh, model of a man in today's society, right? So for them to come in seeking mental health health services may give an impression that they're weak or that they can't handle their own business and things like that. So I think it's the stigma surrounded by mental health. Absolutely. So that's the goal of this episode, right? To remove the stigma of mental health challenges that we all face and then to normalize the healing process, including therapy. Because I I know for myself, what I've I've noticed is a lot of the older people, especially the, the believers, right? So the more religious people, they just want to pray their way through or they feel like God is going to help them. And which I'm not saying he's not, he will help. Right. But you also okay. have to think about that body versus mind maintenance, because if you're not feeling well, or even if you're feeling well, right, we have those well woman exams or you go just every year for a physical just to maintain for maintenance, right. Maintaining your body health, body's health. But okay. why not do that for your mind? Right. We need to go to therapy, not just when something is wrong, but just as maintenance, because that's what you do for your body, but you need to do that for your mind. So if you go and get your nails done, like we talked about on Man Talk Monday, how women go get their nails done, you know, they make sure their hair is done. And so they maintain their physical appearance, but why not maintain your mental health in the same way? Because everybody struggles with mental health at some point in time, right? Everybody goes through things. The legacy of brokenness goes back to Adam in the garden. So no one's above it. Everyone has been broken at some point in time or has experienced some type of toxic stress or maybe even trauma. And so going to seek help shouldn't be looked at as something negative. It should be looked at as something like you're going to try to make sure that you better the health of your mind and better the health of your life. Most definitely. So let's get into the conversation. So we're asking, is childhood trauma equal to suicide, right? So is it a predictor of the fact that someone may commit suicide. Trauma is recognized as an important risk factor in suicidal ideation, but there are many different exposures, right? So someone could have been exposed to sexual abuse or to neglect or mental or physical abuse. So how do you know how it will impact a person, right? There there are many kinds of ACEs. And so you can't be certain who's at a greater risk than someone else. But I did find that sexual abuse is a strong predictor as well as neglect. But essentially, whatever is causing the most or the greatest amount of anxiety and depression 
that stems from that negative exposure is the thing that will show whether or not they're at a greater risk for committing suicide. And so for all of that, what helps is intervention, right? So how do we help these people who have been exposed to trauma or toxic stress to realize that there's another way to heal than to leave, to make a final decision of not being here anymore? And so those people who don't have a, who have a perceived social support, I think are at less risk because they have someone around them to be that buffer so that, you know what I'm saying? If they're going through something, there's someone to, to intervene and to see, help them to seek help. So what would you say would be the connection between childhood trauma and suicide? So it's a lot of undressed trauma going on. So what I'm running into is a lot of um, the young adults are now seeking services for, for therapy for something that was never addressed as a child. So culturally, of course, a lot of this can play a role when the family decides that they do not want to expose some of the traumatic things that's taking place in the household. And what goes on in this house mentality. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so they're now becoming young adults and this stuff has affected their lives in many ways. And now they're realizing, you know, this has affected me. You know, I am significantly dysfunctional in my workplace with relationships um, in different aspects of my life. And so they're wanting to address it. Now, unfortunately, that's not everybody, right? So like you're talking about, it's a, a huge population of people that are not ad addressing it and they're just trying to deal or uh, maybe just take medications. And medications are fine if you're seeking that type of, of support, but I would suggest that you go see a psychiatrist to ask for a referral from your primary care physician to see a psychiatrist that's actually specialized in mental health to actually address uh, mental health concerns when you're taking that type of regimen and not just from a primary care physician because they also can refer you to therapists and other forms of mental health specialists that can help you behaviorally along the way, right? They can teach you different skill sets and go through different modalities to help you with your, with your trauma. So, okay, so we agree. Unresolved trauma in childhood and adolescence is linked yes. to the increased risk of suicide, right? And yes. so for, for people who are in the vicinity of children or adolescents, right? The parents, community um, leaders, especially teachers, these people have direct access to our children, to, to our adolescent population. And so if you know now that there's an increased risk of suicide because these children have been exposed to trauma, how do they step in? What is their first mode of defense, if you will, to be able to help these children through that? And so that when they do become adults, because if it's not addressed, it can escalate with age, right? Because now their brain has been exposed to so much toxic stress and so much trauma because we talked about how trauma and toxic stress in, impact the brain, right? And so it damages those areas, specifically the prefrontal cortex that's responsible for regulating their emotions. So at any time, there could be at a, they could be at a heightened state to where anxiety and depression is just kicking in because their brain has been so damaged by the trauma and toxic stress, but there's nothing going on to intervene between that, right? So they haven't begun the healing process. And if they haven't right. begun the healing process, then they're at a greater risk to, right. to have suicidal ideation. And so that's why we're here so that we can figure out how can we equip teachers? How can we equip parents or people who are around these children to first of all, recognize that the child has gone through trauma and toxic stress, but not only that, step in and become that buffer so that they don't, with age, or even now, you know, a lot of younger people are committing suicide. Don't think that that's the, the way out. 
that that's how yeah. they how they cope because I believe that people who consider suicide don't necessarily want to die, right? They just want the pain to stop. They want that feeling that they're going through to stop. And so you hear how people are saying uh, suicide is selfish and how can they do that to their their loved ones? Um, they had so much to live for on the outside. They looked happy. They seemed happy, but that's not necessarily, not necessarily the case, right? I think right. back to those commercials and it's for some type of antidepressant medication, but where the people are walking around, they're sad, they're depressed, they're feeling anxious some type of way. And so their face reveals that, but they have a, a, a paddle in front of their face with a drawing of a smiley face. And so it's, it's essentially saying how we walk around this life um, smiling and happy and everyone sees that, but they don't recognize the pain that people feel on the inside. And so how do you go about figuring out, you know, if someone is actually hurting or going through, if they're not showing it, because if you looked at Chesley Chris's social media, I mean, she's on the outside. It appeared like she was living life. She was doing what she loved. She had won um, the Miss USA pageant and she had a lot going on for herself. And everybody kept saying she seemed so happy. She seemed, you know what I'm saying? Like she was, she had so much to live for. She had so many achievements. But I found that depression and, and anxiety doesn't care what you've achieved, right? They don't, it doesn't care about your achievements. It doesn't care about the amount of money that you make. And so how do you go about identifying that when you have these people who don't necessarily share the hurt that they're going through? So more than likely, it's going to be a loved one, right? So the loved ones are usually the closest or those who, who are close to you. So you look for just those small signs of, of change in a person, something that you would normally see a person do a part of their routine that they stop doing, you know, when it comes to their normal, you know, things that they would do on a regular, whether they go get coffee and then you notice that they don't get coffee as much, whether they call you um, every day and you notice now they're only calling you once a week, you know, just significant changes that may seem minute, but they're changes um, in this person's behavior you know, call, check up on that person, get more involved and see what's going on with that person. Do uh, well checks, you know, where you just drop in on them. Of course, a lot of times they don't like you just popping up at their house, but if this is your loved one, <laughs> they'll get over it. <laughs> so right. just check on them. But yeah, you have to look for those uh, changes in their in their patterns. And, and when you were talking about kids earlier, when it comes to the teachers identifying these things, it's the same thing. Teachers have to start paying attention to the significant or minute changes in the child's behavior, whether they their behavior was interactive and now they're not so interactive, um, where they keep their head down or they just things that may change in their behaviors um, that teachers can pay attention to. They don't have to be more intuitive, um, do a little more observation when it comes to uh, each and every child that they may interact with. Now, I remember when I was teaching, you know, we had to go through the suicide trainings and they would talk about when the children or when students give away things. And you would think mostly mm -hmm. it would be with adults giving away things, but they were showing us how kids would bring their most prized toys or, or possessions or if they're teenagers, you know, the latest technology that they had and give it away to people at school. And so that was one thing that they asked us, you know, if you see this going on, try to see what's going on with the child. And also a lot of times with students that I had in my class who were dealing with suicidal ideation, they would draw things, you know, on their paper. So, and it was almost like a, a cry for help because it could be, a, you know, a mad test or a reading test, but in the corners, they're drawing things like them dying, 
or you know really explicit or graphic types of um, artwork that really pretty much told a story. And you know, if you ask them what's going on, they will say nothing. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. No, nothing's wrong. But they would draw these pictures, and these were like graph. I mean, blood coming down. They were really, really graphic pictures. And they would say, you know, if they have a plan, that's what they would tell us in the trainings. If they have a plan, right. if they can verbalize to you a plan for committing suicide, that's when you need to make sure that they get this, you know, seek the help that they they need, and also that some type of assessment is being done. But this happened a lot, and I mean, in the elementary sector. And then I had a student one time to say, you know, someone told me to kill myself and someone told me to kill, you know, other people. Now I'm thinking like someone at home, but she's like, no, right now in this classroom, Mm -hmm. something is telling me, you know what I mean? And so sometimes it's not necessarily in your face like that, where they come to you and say, this is what's going on. But it's times where as teachers, you have to be curious and like you say, okay. notice things that are changing, right? Notice things that are changing. Notice the things that they are drawing, the things that they are saying, not only to you, but just to their to their classmates. But be that first level of defense by being curious to find out what's going on with them. And so if that happens, what resources would you as a therapist recommend for someone who's struggling with suicide ideation? Or not even just the person that's struggling, but someone who is around someone who are struggling, or in this case, teachers who are around people who they believe are struggling with suicidal ideation? So when it comes to resources, of course, when it comes to suicide, for one, when it comes to resources, we already know there's a helpline, um, a, a nationwide suicide helpline um, that's available to um, any and everyone to, to seek out a, a assistance or help with, right? Nationwide. Now, when it comes to specifically with children, Um, Unfortunately, I'm not in the children area, I'm more in the adult area, so I know a lot of resources for when they do get to the point when they're adults and they're still dealing with suicidality um, or depression and things like that. So I do have those type of resources available for for adults. Um, They can also be used for families uh, when it comes to the national side of things. Um, uh, SHAMA, so that's another one, SAMA, and SAMSHA, excuse me, SAMSHA. Uh, that's a great resource for families. And so SAMHSA is a national website as well that's for uh, mental health. So on there, they have different resources that break down how families can get involved with their um, loved ones, how um, teachers, like you say, teachers can get involved with their loved ones, how different providers can get involved with individuals who's going through these type of things and may have never experienced it before. So that's a really good resource. And it's uh, S-A-M-H-S-A.gov, SAMHSA. Um, it's a really, mm-hmm. it's a really good, great resource. So if if teachers or if parents are, are mm-hmm. noticing that their children or their children around them or even adolescents are having these thoughts of committing suicide, right? And they're noticing mm-hmm. the things that you talked about earlier that, that they're possibly struggling. And they go to a school counselor or a therapist. Would you suggest that in this amount of therapy, especially for younger children or for teenagers, mm-hmm. that they go through this therapy alone? Or would you suggest no, that yeah. this be a family thing? 
So it's always case by case, right? So it depends on what the cat, what the situation is with the child. So usually a therapist, when they do the assessment, should be equipped enough to identify, okay, this needs to be an individual session or this should be a family session. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's both. You know, sometimes they may start off or, you know, vice versa. They may start off with family and then break off an individual. Or they may start off with individual and break off into family. So it really depends on what the kid, you know, the kid need is at the time. Um, but, you know, I thought about another resource with kids. It just popped up in my head when it comes to outside resources. So school counselors um, may have the information or school social workers may have the information as well of different uh, community or clinics that's in the, their local areas. Uh, but there are children clinics. Uh, Metro Care is one of them. Metro Care serves children and adults as well as uh, child and family guidance serves in the North Texas area as well for children which is a really good resource because it's mostly geared towards children and families. So what happens when, so in, in my case in one year, I had a student who I believed suffered, you know, and not necessarily in silence because she was really vocal about it. She drew a lot of things about it and we contacted the parent and the parent was like, she's fine. There's nothing wrong with her. And it wasn't something where we had to even dig deep to be curious. It was in our faces, you know, her behavior on a daily basis, not only her behavior, but the things that she would say. And remember, behavior is a response. And so Mm -hmm. how a child is behaving is directly communicating to you what they're going through or what they're dealing with. And she would draw a lot. And I mean, I knew everything that was going on in the house. And you could tell that it was what goes on in this house stays in this house from her mom because she would not verbalize that part, but she would draw everything that was going on in her life that was affecting her mental state, right? And that was the precursor to why she was having these suicidal ideations. And so we became really disturbed. And so we had a whole meeting with the parent, the counselor. We even brought in a school psychologist. And the parent was like, there's nothing wrong with her. She's fine. And so we, they even gave her resource after resource. I mean, um, hospitals, doctors, which like you talked about, Metro care, and nothing was done because in the mom's head, first of all, it's what goes on in this house stays in this house. And mm-hmm. second of all, there's nothing wrong. It's just pictures. She's just drawing pictures. It's just the drama. You know, she's just drawing pictures. She's just doing these things. What do you do in that case? So how would we get help to be that person to get them the help that they need if the parents are not on board and this is a child to where they can't do it alone so they're not 17 or 18 to where they can go in and look for these resources on their own or even put themselves in a position to go to to see these therapists or social workers like you said what do you do in that case I would say that's when the school really has to kind of step up and be that support for that child right in the school system um, so if the parent is not on board with taking that child to an outside resource to continuously get that assistance, I would say um, this is something that the schools or the school board need to look into with having those type of resources available in-house. Um, because maybe it is an issue of um, maybe I can't afford it or maybe I don't have insurance or maybe I don't even know how to seek that type of assistance financially when you're talking about going to all these different places. Or maybe it is the stigma so it may be easier and more convenient for a parent to allow the school system to take on that task of being that support. So if the school system has those type of resources in-house, 
uh, whether it's a licensed mental health professional in, inside the school system, uh, whether or not their counselors or their social workers are equipped to handle these cases in the school, things like that. I would say the school and then the teachers knowing, having those same meetings, knowing that this is a case that a kid is going through, having to be that support system for that child inside the school system. I think at that point, it would have to come to that. Um, now, if it's neglectful or something that comes to show that it's some type of abuse or neglect that's taking place, of course, you take the steps to call um, child protective services, of course. But that's always something you have to keep in mind. If it's if the, the parents are being neglectful of my ch of this child's mental health, and it's obvious that it's affecting them in some type of way, is this worthy of a call to CPS? All right. You know, those, those type of assessments have to be made too. So you said something earlier about costs, right? About, yeah. you know, they don't have the insurance or the money. But a lot mm -hmm. of times, especially now, there's access to so many free mm -hmm. resources, right? If you are mm -hmm. employed, most most employment agencies have to where you can get received. I, I think it's like six free sessions. Mm -hmm. And I know within the school districts, it's six free sessions per issue, right? Mm -hmm. So you may be dealing with issues with your child that you want to go and talk about. You get six free sessions about that. You may want to talk about an issue that you're a mental health issue, but you know, it's stemming from marital problems or marital issues. Mm -hmm. That's six free sessions for that. And so there's ways to receive free assistance for mental health. Do you have yeah. any that you know offhand for people who are not necessarily employed by someone who can give it give them access to mental health? Yeah. So um Parkland. So the Parkland has their own healthcare plan. So you can literally go to Parkland and enroll in their healthcare plan uh, for mental health services as well as medical. Um, if you go to a place like Metro Care that serves the mental health population, they will automatically enroll you into a mental health plan as well if you fit the income barriers. A lot of these places will do it for you, right? So they'll actually enroll if they're if you're needing their services, no income or low income. Um, if you have Medicaid or Medicare and things like that, then that'll pay for your services when it comes to mental health as well. And like you stated before, employee assistant benefits um, is available. That's, that's in the DFW area, right? And so that's in the DFW area. If they in the Dallas Fort Worth area, if they are outside of the DFW, would you say that they could also find whatever the community hospital mm -hmm. is in their state, and they should have um, yes. those same resources? Okay. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. Any county, any county facilities or hospitals, um, most of the outside counties was probably say um, MHMR clinics or something like that. Most of the time they're going to be connected to the government assistance when it comes to mental health insurance. And you uh, stated something earlier in regards to the parent. Um, I would say um, education, right? So providing the education to the parent of the things that we're talking about, just like making sure they're aware of the resources that's available to them to kind of eliminate some of the reasons that may be present to why she don't want to seek help for her child or educate her on the mental health or what you see and things like that. Just let it, giving her a deeper, kind of like this conversation, giving her a deeper understanding of how serious some of the things you're seeing in her child can be so that she can actually take it serious. Now, is that something that social workers do? Yes. So would you child say... I am I am really fighting to get more mental health professionals in the school systems because teachers are not mental health professionals, right? The my goal is to make it to where we are informed, 
We are given the tools and strategies as educators um, in the school system to be able to identify when a student is struggling with mental health issues, right? And try to support them in those things. But we don't know necessarily what to do. And that's my biggest thing is when, you know, when I started teaching, I was like, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I signed up to teach reading and writing and math, not to deal with students who have been exposed to trauma. And how do I teach them when I have to first get through the trauma that they've experienced and without the knowledge of how to do so, right? And so I feel like if they're going to put us in a situation to be that first line of defense or that first line of support for students' mental health, they should give us the tools and strategies to do so. Or also put those mental health professionals in the school buildings because there's not enough social workers. We have counselors, but then they have paperwork duties. They have, you know, other duties that they're assigned. But what happens to the mental health professionals as far as the social workers, as far as the school psychologists? We need to push for them to be more present on campuses, especially in a climate like this. I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, in a health in situations like what you're referring to with the, uh, the mother and daughter, um, mm -hmm. if a social worker or a mental health provider was in the vicinity, they can literally have a one-on-one -on -one session with their mom and just break it down, you know, break it down. Yeah. There's resources and the seriousness of what's taking place and what it can look like if she does not get the help that she needs. Right. That's powerful. Because ultimately, the, that mother could be put in the same situation as these three people who just, you know, decided to take their lives are in. Because I'm sure if they had known the seriousness or not even the seriousness, but the extent to which their their child was was in agony or was was suffering, they would have done something because they'd rather do that, do something then have to bear their child, right? And I think that a lot of the teachers and a lot of the parents that are listening have to realize that this thing is not just something that they'll get over. You know, they won't get over it without the support of you, their family, and with and teachers, and without the support of mental health professionals. So that's what I hope you gain from this episode on today. Before we leave, I want you to leave them, Ms. Robinson, with some final thoughts, what would you want to leave with, with teachers, with parents, with community leaders who are in the vicinity, as you say, of these students or these adolescents or these young adults or adults, period, their friends and family who are suffering in silence or who have been exposed to a high dose of toxic stress and trauma and could have had, could have be suffering with um, suicidal ideation. Um, I would say just educate yourselves, right? First, be informed on what mental health is, right? What's the different disorders that can be out there? Um, look for different signs. Uh, what do I need to look for, right? What signs do I look for? Just get yourself informed on the mental health resources that's in your community. Be aware of what is in your local community? What it, what type of phone numbers can I call? What type of things that's handy to me? Um, so that if I face this, I know who to reach out to. Just get yourself informed in that area as well. I would say be that person that does not overlook a person when you notice a change. You know, don't just brush it off. Actually take, uh, take it serious and start getting intuitive about what this person may be going through um, and, and, and be observant and be, uh, present and just showing your loved ones that you do care and that you do love them, even if it gets on their nerves. Show them that you are their support. That's what I would say. I love that. Thank you. And I would say it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to sit there and to stay there and not seek the help that you need 
and the help that you deserve. And with that, I'm going to leave you with our teaching through the eyes of trauma takeaways for this week. Number one, of course, be curious. Like Ms. Robinson said, if you notice the behaviors that someone, yourself, a student, a coworker, or anyone that may be experiencing suicidal ideation, step in, you know, step in and be that support that they need. Number two, intervene. Provide them with the resources or connect them with individuals that can assist them with therapy, with medications, or any strategies that can help them to get through what they're experiencing. Number three, be a buffer. Provide them with that social support so that their core emotional needs of safety, love, and boundaries are met. And number four, heal first, educate always. Without being beginning the healing process, childhood trauma has a greater risk of influencing suicidal ideation. So if you, if your student or someone that you know has considered suicide, please call the Suicide Prevention, and that is at 1-800-273-8255. Again, the Suicide Prevention number is 1-800-273-8255. Thank you so much, Ebony, for joining us here at Teaching Through the Eyes of Trauma. Thank you for your expertise Thank you for the work that you do in, to, in providing um, individuals with the support and the therapy that they need to get through their traumas and to get through their thoughts of suicide. And thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. No problem. Join us next week on Teaching Through the Eyes of Trauma. We'll see you then. Bye.